want you to try to imagine a world where everyone was at ease with who they are and how they were made and felt good about how they look and trusted those around them. They're at ease with who they are, how they were made, felt good about how they look, and trusted those around them. I want to ask this. Can we become whatever we feel or perceive ourselves to be? Can we become whatever we feel or perceive ourselves to be? Let's go back in time. A few years, just a few years ago, do you remember in 2015 when you first heard that Bruce Jenner, the Olympic champion, American hero, declared that he was no longer Bruce? Jenner, the once revered picture of athleticism, believed he really was a woman and defined himself as transgender. When that happened, what did you feel? What emotions did you experience? Did you feel perhaps happy for him or perhaps sad for him? Were you angry or confused? Here's a fellow who has it all, money and fame, and yet still seeking self-acceptance, peace, and help. Fast forward some time later, and we see him on the cover of Vanity Fair, wearing lingerie, posing provocatively, hands tucked behind his back to hide his masculine hands, and copying the hyper-feminized and exaggerated sex appeal of the day that we're used to seeing on the covers of magazines at the grocery store. The headline said it all, Call Me Caitlin. The message was clear. Men can become women if they feel or perceive themselves to be women and vice versa. For this, Jenner won the ESPN Arthur Ashe Courage Award. Jenner was also named Woman of the Year by Glamour magazine. And this was less controversial than Jenner identifying as Republican. This is the world we live in. Jenner catapulted transgenderism to the front of culture at a very fast pace. All of a sudden, gender identity has become the most fashionable social justice issue of our day. We live now in the time of debating restroom usage and sports participation. It was just in the news again this week. We ask other questions now. How and when should children be confronted with the debates about gender? What do we say to someone experiencing gender dysphoria feelings and desires? How do we in truth and grace help those who are deeply hurting and looking for help? Well, as Christians, we know there's so much more at stake in this conversation. In God making us male and female, there's nothing less than the gospel at stake. For example, Ephesians 5, many of you know that passage. We can't make sense of the underlying logic about marriage unless we note God's intention in creating marriage as a gospel-shaped union between a differentiated and complementary pair. Any move to abolish all distinctions between men and women is a move whether intentionally or not, to tear down the the building blocks of redemption itself, as one author put it. God created men and women, two different sexes, so that he might paint a living picture of the differentiated and complementary union of Christ and the church. But before we get into any of that, we need to try to back up and understand how we got to this point that we are in today in society. Scholar and theologian Carl Truman observed that apologetics used to be explaining the church to the world. Today, he says, it is now us explaining the world to the church. I hope to do some of that this morning. In presenting this material and not wanting to be guilty of plagiarism, I've leaned heavily into Carl Truman, Andrew Walker, Ryan Anderson, and others to help me with the philosophical and sociological concepts. 
I've gleaned also a lot from Kevin DeYoung and, again, Andrew Walker for biblical help. If what I say corresponds directly or indirectly with them, don't be surprised. I'm giving them full credit right now. All right? Here's the central point for you for today's sermon. We were designed, we were designed for so much more than living merely for our desires as men and women. We were designed for so much more than living merely for our desires as men and women. Therefore, know that God created us for greater glories. God created us for greater glories. Let's dive into point number one. Observe carefully the gender debate today. Observe carefully the gender debate today. First sub point, philosophies gain momentum. Philosophies gain momentum. To get where we are today, things had to happen. The self first must be psychologized, Psychology must be then sexualized, and sex must be politicized. Now, let's spend some time unpacking that this morning. What this means is that when we act on our desires, we must first dismiss the idea of a universal human nature, such as we're all subject of the, subjects of the fall. That has to be dismissed or that we were created. That has to be chunked out. Instead, we are to blame our actions first and foremost, that, that are problematic or even questionable to our environments, to our circumstances, they are at fault. This was popularized by the very self-centered and unethical philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The end goal is to be true to our feelings. You've got to be true to your feelings. You ever heard that? Nature over nurture, over society. And this, of course, must be tied to our sexual desires. And those desires, when opposed, must be politicized where those who disagree with us are now oppressors. The key to a meaningful life is discovering one's authentic self within and enacting that inner self's desires despite external opposition from tradition, authority, or religion. And this allows us today to prioritize victimhood, seeing sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying and places a premium on the individual's right to divine, define his or her own existence. All these things play into legitimizing and strengthening groups that can define themselves in such terms. Well, you can fast forward from Rousseau to Sigmund Freud, who emphasized that the sexual desires are the essence of human happiness, leading to a reconfiguration of human destiny. To follow Rousseau is to make identity psychological. To follow Freud is to make psychology and thus identity sexual. To mesh this combination with Karl Marx is to make identity and therefore sex political. Let me explain. First subpoint: political moves are becoming more aggressive. Political moves are becoming more aggressive. The political power of sex is not a new thing, nor is the role of popular literature in promoting revolutionary social change. This is nothing new at all. The ideas of these so-called, quote, intellectuals began to impact art and popular culture throughout the decades. Many of you are probably familiar with Francis Schaeffer. He's written and done a lot on that. But let's just take eroticism, for example. It was at the very center of the surrealist political project of the 1920s. Eroticism is the glorification of sexual desire and the establishment of it as the subversive norm and impulse for reconstructing human personhood and society. The goal was always to overthrow moral codes governing sexual behavior through works of art on human desires, and their attainment through self-actualization of the individual. 
It thought to change society's judgment of the cultural value, for example, of pornography from something bad and detrimental to something good and healthy. In a world of empathy-based ethics, the moral sense is ultimately the aesthetic sense. And that means that when the sacred order collapses, morality is simply a matter of taste, not truth. In a world in which the idea of universal human nature has been abandoned to the point of being meaningless, it also means that those who shape popular taste become those who exert the most moral power and set society's moral standards. Are you following me? Let's just go back a little bit in time. Shortly after the Supreme Court redefined marriage, The Obama administration redefined sex to mean gender identity. He put that in quotes. In our nation's civil rights laws, they did it, and as you remember, imposed these gender identity policies on schools and health care providers. The transgender cause was made mainstream. States like New York are fining citizens who fail to use the preferred pronoun of transgender citizens. North Carolina tried to make some concessions to uh, gender identity, if you remember, but they drew the line to some extent on bathroom policies to protect biological women. This compromising measure was seen as repulsive. The then uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch thought it was completely logical to compare North Carolina's move to segregating people according to skin color. She said it was the same thing for them to make a compromise to seek to try to protect biological women in the bathroom, she compared it to segregating people according to skin color. Big business piled in, too, against North Carolina. PayPal announced they were canceling plans for $3.6 million of job expansion in the state because North Carolina's compromises on the bathroom went against their deepest values and believed that every person has the right to be treated equally and with dignity and respect. PayPal, however, never explained why its international headquarters are in Singapore where people engaging in homosexuality can face two years in jail or how they have offices in the UAE who jail gay and transgender citizens. Even the NBA (gasps) jumped into action against North Carolina. That was interesting indeed given that their sister organization, the WNBA, literally determines participation in their leagues according to biology. Political and cultural elites have tried to shut down any discussion about the radical shift before it starts by imposing political correct orthodoxy on the nation, an ideology in which gender identity is both a subjected matter and a category meriting civil rights protection. Hence the sadly named Equality Act, which only seeks to put into action aggressive policies against those that dare to disagree with the radical measures, procedures, medical procedures, and policies of the transgender movement. So society no longer sees itself in large in need of redemption, but in need of being pleased. Again, Truman astutely concluded, the long-term implications of this revolution are significant for no culture or society that has had to justify itself by itself has ever maintained itself for any length of time, end quote. Tear down the transcendent and exalt the self. It's all part of a materialistic worldview. Materialism says that the only world that of matter of, of matter exists. There's nothing outside of nature, no God, or gods exist. The world is just a set of raw materials that we use to make whatever identity and life we desire. So we live in a world, at least here in our country, that is all about material pleasure and at the same time says a a person's self-awareness is different than and more important than their physical material body. They won't have both ways. This is where we get terminology like gender identity. It's a person's self-perception whether they are male or female, masculine or feminine. Gender is unattached from sex. And remember, because of advances in medical science, 
These are new, friends. If you want to call it, if you want to call it advances, we are the first generation that are able to seek to make sex follow gender rather than the other way around. These procedures are now uh, that allow all allow people whose sex is male and who identify their gender as female to have their bodies surgically reshaped to reflect the female gender. And what it means for someone dealing with the stress and anguish and conflict from their perceived gender, gender identity crisis is that no longer are they granted help to deal with what was once deemed a mental health problem, which needed compassion, but now they are encouraged and medically promoted to pursue it to its fullest. Today, no one is encouraging the questioning the, to question our feelings, for they are not to be doubted or criticized. We are only to pursue what feels right to us at whatever stage we are in our lifetime. So as you can see, today there are two unforgivable sins in a postmodern, post-Christian mind, individualistic world. The first is to disagree or judge, and the second is the failure to fulfill your desires. The Marxist ideology of materialism has deeper roots in our society than we realize. Marxist materialism and atheism are, by the way, are non-negotiable. In our, quote, in our evolutionary conception of the universe, when Marxists said, there is absolutely no room for either a creator or a ruler. No room at all. To the Marxist, everything in history can be explained by the struggle between those they label as the haves and have-nots. It's the simplest way I could put it. To them, that... Structure explains everything, the struggle between the haves and the have-nots. It explains to them everything in politics, religion, law, and culture. They apply this dialectic analysis to all kinds of conflicts, religious and non-religious, blacks and whites, men and women, heterosexuals and homosexuals, as evidence of this dialectic process at work. So the notion of oppression used to deal with the abolitionism and the civil rights movement from a desire to see African Americans enjoy the same opportunities for flourishing as others and a flourishing for which political freedom and equality before the law were basic foundations. Now, however, are those, that's being applied where we, we live in an era where the worst oppression is considered to be psychological. That which hinders people from being who they really are, or at least who they think they really are. They've taken that and they've applied it there and raised it the same level as the civil rights movement. Key to the politicization of sex is the trajectory from, from Marx through the critical theory of the new left, which treats sex as a, quote, constitutive element of public social identity and seeks to liberate society from the tyranny of traditional, this is their term, the tyranny of traditional sexual mores and their nursery, the family. There's so much I could say here. There's so much to wade through that people, these, these so-called experts that are looked to on, on sociology and psychology and their lives not only are a personal disaster, but they say the most radical things and they hope for the destruction of the family. Postmodern deconstructionists learned from Nietzsche to undermine dominant moral standards by unveiling their lineage, showing where they came from and whose interests they served. Let me, let me put it like this. What I mean here is that the LGBTQ plus movement uses the expressions of past cultures. <laughs> this is tricky. Based on sacred order, most obviously the language of marriage, love, and family, they use those, those terms, to undermine and destabilize those past orders by profaning their content and shattering their meaning. These terms take on whole new meanings in their usage of them. It's certainly the case that calling on the language of Jim Crow 
and segregation provides powerful rhetorical ammunition for the LGBTQ plus cause and indeed makes public criticism of its political demands very, very difficult when you use that language and you're trying to go against what's really going on there, it sounds like you're attacking something right and good. To separate gender from sex or to, to, to define marriage as a union between two or more people of the same sex is not to expand the traditional definitions of these things. It is to abolish them in their entirety. That's the end goal. At the core of sexual revolution, going back to historical figure, figures like Shelley and Blake, is eliminating the traditional family. Activists today tend to be uncompromising in their demands, yet their worldview is fraught with contradictions. One of the big ones is this. The real authentic self is fundamentally separate from the material body, yet ironically they insist that transforming the body is crucial to personal wholeness. You see what I'm saying there? I'll say it again. The real authentic self is fundamentally separate from the material body, yet ironically, they insist that transforming the body is crucial for personal wholeness. Well, which is it? Another example is that they attach a notion of authentic gender identity to stereotypical activities and dispositions. Think of what they did with gender on the front of that magazine. And yet it grows from a philosophy that gender is an artificial construct. Which is it? And one thing is certainly also true today. Sadly, people who identify as transgender report disproportionately higher rates of mental health problems and the rest of the general population, including depression, suicide, and thoughts of suicide. Something that's also left out of the mainstream and that is regularly suppressed in the media are the stories of people who come back from transgenderism and gender dysphoria and articulate their deep regrets. But that doesn't sell. Do our politics really reflect today loving kindness? Let's go to the next point. We were designed for so much more than living merely for our desires as men and women. Therefore, know that God created us for greater glories. Number two. Understand the social imaginary. Understand the social imaginary. I know that's a strange phrase there, but it's an important one. How societies think is what I meant by the phrase social imaginary. As the late Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor said, it is the common understanding which makes possible common practices and widely shared sense of legitimacy, end quote. All of the myriad of beliefs, practices, normal expect, normative expectations, and even implicit assumptions that members of society share and that shape their daily lives. It is the way people think about the world, how they imagine it to be, how they act intuitively in relation to it, how we look at our world to make sense of it and make sense of our behavior within it. So let's see our current social context. First subpoint there, our time is post-Christendom. Our time is post-Christendom. We, we live in a post-Christendom world. Christianity is in the decline in the West. Its cultural influence is dying. The moral truths that it proclaims are having less impact each passing year. Fewer people are attending church, which means that devotion uh, people once gave Christianity seems to be receding. And there are a number of factors that contribute to that. But I want to say as a pastor that one of the primary problems behind us, behind this issue in America, for, for some reason, that so many evangelical churches have inoculated generations to the gospel. And they've done this through poor teaching on what, may, what, what the doctrine of conversion, what it means to be a convert of Christ. And there's been a refusal to practice meaningful membership and discipline. And it has produced a bunch of gathering of fake Christians who have no concept of what it means to really align themselves fully with Jesus Christ. Why do we take such time to teach on conversion? Can't you see the shape of the church in America? Easy believism has crippled the church in America. 
Decisionism rather than discipleship. And so fake disciples grow up with no real relationship to Christ, no biblical convictions, and they pass no gospel heritage on to their children. There's a cost to expanding nominal Christianity because the next generation will never know the biblical Christ. In the West, over the last generation, there's been growing acceptance of sexual immorality in all of its forms and acceptance of declining marriage rates and rising divorce rates and more people living together before and instead of covenanting covenanting together in marriage. And these people come into the membership of the church, live the way they want to, and the church has nothing to say about it from God's word. All of these changes can only take place in the context where questioning ways of understanding the world are seen as optional and, uh, and irrelevant and sadly now increasingly hateful and bigoted. I'll say this again. All of these changes can only take place in the context where questioning ways of understanding the world are seen as optional, irrelevant, and sadly now increasingly hateful and bigoted. In any society, there's always a morality that reigns supreme. There always is. The secular framework and morality that will make it more and more the case that holding to biblical Christian values is on the wrong side of secular culture and what they deem to be the wrong side of history. You probably hear that phrase a lot in pop culture. I want to be on the right side of history, says Taylor Swift. No, she wants to be popular. The most influential sectors of U.S. culture uh, the most, in, I want, and I want to talk to parents especially right here, the most influential sectors of our culture that include the academy, media entertainment, art, law, are increasingly no longer influenced by Christianity because those who occupy places of prestige, influence, and cultural impact are in most cases not Christians, nor are they sympathetic to Christian views. In fact, they are uh, antagonistic to them. I'll tell you this so that you so that you're not, not that you go rescue these things, but that you focus on your home, your church, and your neighborhood and making Christ supreme. Next subpoint there, sexual freedom is the standard of personal fulfillment today. Sexual freedom is the standard of personal fulfillment. The goal behind this push is to push forward the view that our bodies are our own, and for us to enjoy and to do whatever we want with them. Some of you may be sitting here like, of course that's true. Of course that's, that's, that's ever all I've ever known my whole life, is that my body is my own, and it's for me to enjoy and do whatever I want. It is literally almost unchangeable today, un- excuse me, unchallengeable today in the entertainment industry. The broad assumption is that sexual freedom is the highest standard of personal fulfillment. Christian ideas of sex and sexual morality have been challenged and overturned, coinciding with industrialized hormonal contraception. And I'm not at this point trying to debate pros and cons of the pill. That's not what I'm talking about. But his introduction was nothing short of revolutionary in our country. People in times past certainly engaged in sexual immorality. There was always the potential for pregnancies to occur, not anymore. And this has repercussions for how society thinks about the purposes of sex. There is an equal reaction to that action. There are consequences are being removed, and so minds are changing about sex. No longer is sex assumed to take place only in marriage. The legalization of abortion in 1973 here in the U.S., And the resultant lack of stigma completed the separation of having sex and giving birth. And some say the sexual revolution resulted in positive developments for women's rights. They also have to see that it led to declining marriage rates and an explosion in the divorce rate and countless abortions. At least for the first couple of decades, it resulted in an increase in the number of abortions being performed each year. And we in the global West are living downstream from the power of waves of the sexual revolution. Contraception also minimizes the risk of unwanted pregnancy and facilitating sex as recreation. It also curtails the spread of sexually transmitted disease. Let's keep removing as many consequences as we can and people's philosophies and mindsets on this begins to change. 
mutual consent between partners moves to the center of the discussion about what is and what is not acceptable behavior. And this, in turn, places huge pressure on even the most deeply rooted of sexual taboos. Why should incest be, pro be prohibited if it's between consenting adults and, no, and there's no risk of conception? Next subpoint. Radical individualism is the prevailing mindset. Radical individualism is the prevailing mindset. Friedrich Nietzsche's vision of casting off the view of the world as possessing meaning has taken large ground in the hearts of many today. What has risen in its place is that meaning lies with the human self as a constructive agent. Individualism says everyone gets to write their own script. It flows from relativism. It says the meaning of truth is relative. What's right for one person may be wrong for another person. You can go to a college campus today and hear the same ridiculous phrase come out of anybody who's interviewed and pressed on a subject matter. You have to live out your own truth. That is not a courageous st stance, young people. You have to live out your own truth. You just sidestepped any position of objective truth and made it subjective. It's obnoxious and absurd. You have to live out your truth. What? Relativism denies a grand story and claims that there are only individual stories. And what, in, what an individual wills or wants is the highest good, and it's wrong to tell someone that their choices or beliefs are wrong or immoral. The greatest sin, in fact, the only sin is judging someone else. And rather than focus on families, clans, and communities being dom the dominant way people understand their existence, we now process in terms of individualism. Our, our culture is, in this mindset, is, is actually very anti-culture. That's what's being put forth. A culture with no sacred order has the task, the impossible task, of justifying itself only by reference to itself. Morality will thus tend toward a matter of simple consequentialist pragmatism with the notion of what are and not desirable outcomes being shaped by the distinct cultural pathologies of the day. We operate today on the ethics of feeling. There's no greater purpose than today for many than self-actualization and fulfillment of the individual. Let me be also clear, in this radical individualistic society, a person's view of themselves is not enough. Identity today requires recognition by another. I must have your approval and recognition. You must give it to me. The person who objects, for example, to homosexual practice is, in contemporary society, actually objecting to homosexual identity. You see the difference. Many see this as a legitimate moral offense and oppressive. Court cases concerning the provision of cakes and flowers for gay weddings are not ultimately about the flowers or the cakes. They are about the recognition of identity. This mindset is the spirit of the age. This is all heavy stuff. And I'm just scratching the surface of it. Let's go to point three. Let's turn to some better news. Finally, I can preach. I feel like I've been having this first set up the lecture first. Now I can preach the word. Point three, revisit the old story. Revisit the old story. You can open your Bibles to Genesis 1 right now. So it's literally on page one of the New Pew Bible. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Look again at Genesis 1.24-27. through 27. Genesis 1.24-27. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that crawl, and the wildlife on the earth according to their kinds. And, so, and it was so. 
So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Then look at verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came and the morning the sixth day. So the first sub-point here I want to point out is this. Consider your source of authority. Consider your source of authority. What is reality? What is the nature of the world around us? What is a human being? And what happens to a person at death? What is, why is it possible to know anything at all? How do we know what is right and wrong? Friends, we, have to, we all have to figure out a source of authority. People today have sources of authority that they all appeal to. People look to their family, to their nation, to their political associations, to their religion, their friends, to their feelings, to entertainment, and to science. People make a choice to listen to their feelings, the, the reason or religious codes. They decide this in small decisions, like whether or not to eat dessert or big decisions like the sexuality. You are making an appeal to some source of authority of why you choose to do what you do. And make no mistake about it, we live in an age where claims to authority are challenged and contested on every side. And scandals in religious and other historic institutions, political scandals and cover-ups, on top of seeing officers of the law that have been caught breaking the law, have not helped. There's all kinds of ways that people question authority and today in directing their personal decisions. When all the traditional sources of authority are under such a challenge, guess where people look? When all the traditional sources of authority are questioned, guess where people look? To me, myself. I mean, who has the right to tell me how to live more than me? Who knows me better than me? Who can I trust to want what's best for me more than me? I think this, uh, this mindset has, is more prevalent in the church than we know. There's places we know that God is authoritative and knows what's best, and we look at him from a biblical perspective. But I want to be clear, this is so present today. Who can I trust to want what's best for me more than me? And lost in that train of thought is the reality of how our decisions actually might impact others because we're so focused on me. None of us have the authority or right to do something that will affect someone else adversely, including the ways we can't see. And lost in that way of thinking is also, is also how actually we really know ourselves that well. There's a question that, that we should ask. Am I really to be trusted to want what's best for me? Am I really to be trusted to want what's best for me? If all of us adults in the room had acted on every feeling and thought that looked good to us when we were 16 years old, well, how would our lives look today? There's some of you, you know good and well, you're like, man, I thank God I didn't marry that one. <laughs> you know good and well. You thought, I was going to marry that person. Just, that's just one way you can look back and realize, yeah, I wasn't the best one to, to ask that question. We question all kinds of authorities with good reason. But we're so slow to question our feelings. And we have bought, we have bought so deeply into follow your heart. Oh my goodness. In our feelings, friends, we got to remember they need questioning too. It turns out the self is not such a great place to look for authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness. So where do we go when we're rightly skeptical of institutions, skeptical of organizations, skeptical, skeptical of previous generations, and skeptical of ourselves? Where do we go for authority? 
The Bible tells us where to go. We go to God. It puts together a script on which to understand and where to look for perfect authority, knowledge, and trustworthiness. The world has a creator. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise. And what is made belongs to its maker. So the creator God has authority. What is made is best known by its maker. You, You follow me? What is made is best known by its maker. The creator has the knowledge. We are part of creation and alive within creation. And let me tell you this. God has the right to tell me what to do. He has the knowledge necessary always to understand what I should do and what is best for me in the world. But is he good? Is he trustworthy? Yes. Look at what he's done for this world who has only lived in rebellion and sin against him. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We can trust God because he came in, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that all of us should have lived and then died the death we deserve at Calvary's cross in the place of any and all who would turn from their sins and turn back to God and put their trust in Jesus alone and forgive them and cleanse them and heal them of all their sins and, and sorrows. A crucified creator is a God who has the authority to tell us what to do, who has the wisdom to know what is best for us, and who has proved that he can be trusted to tell us what is best for us. And so the Bible reveals to us a God who has the authority to demand your obedience, and he has the character that deserves your respect. This God really does know what's best for me and really does does want what's best for me. This is why Christians hold views or believe things that go against that, uh, that go against us naturally or instinctively in the flesh. Christians have found a better source for authority, knowledge, and trust that our own reason or feelings or our own traditions than looking to them or our own pat- traditional assumptions. We know that God may not always agree with our feelings or our reasoning, but he can be trusted and he knows what he's talking about and he has the right to tell us how to live. His words are good to listen to and to obey. Second subpoint there, consider God's blueprint in Genesis. Consider God's blueprint in Genesis. When we read Genesis, we see there is a great designer. And he had a plan for how he was going to make the world. And he, he had a blueprint and spoke it into existence by the power of his word. And look at verse 31 of chapter 1. He nodded at the beauty of his creation. It was very good. It was not average. It wasn't purposeless. No, it was very good. His purpose is brilliant. Whether it's trees or stars or atoms or baby's fingers, creation is full of inspiring sights, sounds, and smells. And look at verses 26 through 29 there. The high point. The high point of the story of creation is God's act of making mankind. Like an artist finishing a masterpiece with extra care, attention, and precision. Just as a great engine has great, greater value than the sum of its constituent parts because it's been made intentionally as an engine, as a crucial part of a greater plan, so we, to arrive, uh, we too are worth more than our parts add up to or then our contribution to our nation's economy or to species to our species' future, we have been made intentionally as part of God's greater creative plan. So that means, indeed, our bodies do matter. They are intentional. What we do with them matters to the one who made them. And while we are more than our bodies, we are not less. Christ came to redeem the whole person. He assumed full humanity, and he will redeem full humanity when he comes again. Those who are trusting in him. We are not just a collection of atoms that happen to be conscious. Nor are we God-aware souls trapped in in the materials of this universe. We are living, feeling, emotional, embodied beings 
designed to relate to and reflect the Creator with each part of ourselves. Which brings me to this next sub-point. Consider the dignity God gives us. Consider the dignity that God gives us. Humanity is the high point because there's something unique about mankind. Only humans, look at the text, bear God's image. For all the discussion around that doctrine, everyone agrees that to bear God's image means there's a special relationship that only humans have with God. There is a likeness and a representation of God in humanity. We are not identical to God, but we are made to be like God and features such in features such as in features like this morality, spirituality, mentally, and relationally. Humans can know God in ways the rest of creation cannot. Rabbits do not debate the existence and nature of the divine while nibbling on grass. Humans are given the task to subdue creation, to rule over it on God's behalf as vice regents. We are made to represent God, to relate to God, to rule on behalf of God. It's from being made in God's image we possess inherent dignity. Oh man, we're so much more than what, what our parts desire. Last, consider his authority, purposes, and offer. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundations on the seas and established it on the rivers. God made this world, and this world, and this world belongs to God. We are part of the creation. We are creatures with the Creator. And the best way to live life is according to the blueprint that he designed and by playing the part that God designed humanity to perform. We can't rewrite the blueprint and design. That's a very arrogant thing to do. Planes, uh, no, a plane's engine cannot decide to become the plane's wheels or the wings. We have neither the authority nor the ability to rewrite or reconfigure how God made this world. It's his creation. We're just living in it. <laughs> his authority extends to us. And that's why his voice deserves to be heard. That's why his opinion needs to be, uh, hold the ultimate weight in this discussion about gender. That's all I want to make sure to drive home today. Does the creator have the right to speak about and to his creation? Does he have more knowledge that of his creation than a small part of that creation does. This debate on competing authorities, ourselves or God, creatures or creator, we have to decide. And I want to assert this morning that it's safer to cast our lot with the story of the creator who speaks authoritatively about how he made creation and why he made creation. He is sovereign. He assigns to humans what humans are. That, and it means that being creatures are the highest call, is our highest calling. And our greatest pleasure is found only in living in line with how God designed us. I didn't say it was the easiest. I did not say it was the most popular. But being creatures means we cannot recreate ourselves in any fashion or form that we desire by simple act of the will or the complex work of a surgeon. To reject God's design, let me be clear, is to rebel against the natural order of how things are objectively and rejecting the life that's going to be the highest good for us. Maleness and femaleness are not artificial categories. They are essential to God's plan. They're, the two are neither identical nor interchangeable. This is not the invention of Victorian prudes. This is God's idea. Men and women were given their anatomies to reflect their God-given gender. Our bodies do not lie to us about our gender. To misunderstand and blur and reject God's categories doesn't just put us in rebellion against him and creation. It puts us at odds with how each of us was made.
We were made different from one another as men and women because we were made to complement each other in order to fulfill our God-given task in this world. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 19. Haven't you read, he replied, that he, he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And Jesus also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus repeated the Genesis pattern. He reminds us that we are created people, male and female. A man is someone who's able to become one flesh. That means have full intercourse with a woman. And a woman is someone who's able to become one flesh with a man. And Jesus says, what God does, people should not seek to undo. What God does, people should not seek to undo. Before sin, let me conclude. Before sin entered the world, there was no shame. And I started off this morning by saying, imagine a world where everyone was at ease with who they are and how they were made and felt good about how they look and trusted those around them. That's Genesis 1 and 2. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And the thing is, today, people on both sides of the transgender debate, or in the middle of it, or seeking to cling on to, or rediscover, or create what was truly experienced, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to experience what was originally right there in Genesis 1 and 2. They're trying to rediscover, or make it for themselves, that environment. But you know, they will only know wholeness and the removal of all shame and being reconciled to our Creator and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We are all a bunch of messed up people, broken. We're all, as we read this morning, subjects of the fall. We are indeed Adam's offspring, inherently sinful. And we stand, actually, judiciously guilty also in Adam. Today, I want to offer you that good news. that God loves you. Yeah, he loves sinners like you and me. Not because we're so great and valuable, but because of his great love. He just chose to love. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever would believe upon him, trust in him, commit to him, would not perish but have everlasting life. Don't look to self or the solutions of society to make you whole. Only Christ can forgive and heal and redeem. He shed his blood on Calvary. He was raised on the third day. And he's been ascended back on high. He's coming again. Today's the day. If you don't know Christ, come to Christ. Let your creator have all authority in your life. He knows what's best. He's trustworthy. Let's pray. God, we have been too caught up in ourselves and following the ways of this world. We have had a lesser vision of you. No wonder we at times make the decisions we make. Oh, Lord, captivate our hearts. You are the eternal, all-powerful, all-trustworthy, omnipotent, holy creator and redeemer and savior. Help us to live out the roles you've assigned us, Lord, and give you thanks for the gift of gender, to the glory of your, of your name, and display, Lord, your relationship to your people. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Amen.